Hi, and welcome to Diaries of Social Data Research, a podcast where we take a deeper look into the research diaries of interdisciplinary collaborations. We're your hosts, Lucy Lee and Katie Key. Today, our guest is Dora Dembski, who is a PhD candidate in the Linguistics Department at Stanford. There, she is advised by Dan Jarafsky and is a member of the NLP group. Her research focuses on building and deploying natural language processing methods to support equitable and student-centered education. Although she's primarily focused on solving problems in education, in the past, she has also worked on dialect dialect feature recognition, emotion detection, and on using natural language processing to understand political issues such as polarization and propaganda. Welcome, Dora. Thank you for having me. Today, we'll be discussing Dora's paper, Measuring Conversational Uptake, a case study on student-teacher interactions. This paper was co-authored with Dean Liu, Zid Mancinito, Julie Cohen, Heather Hill, Dan Jarafsky, and Tatsu Hashimoto. This paper provides a computational framework for measuring uptake in a classroom setting, where uptake is when a teacher builds on the ideas expressed by a student, such as through acknowledgement, repetition, or elaboration. The authors released a new expert annotated data set of uptake from teacher-student conversations in math classrooms and measure uptake as both overlap between teacher and student utterances and as dependence of the teacher's utterance on the students. Lastly, they correlate their uptake measures with student educational outcomes, showing that higher dependence corresponds to better outcomes. Is there anything that you'd like to add, Dora, about the summary? Hey, thank you. That, that was a great summary. Great. So to, to kick us off, can you talk about where this research idea came from for this particular paper and how the paper fits into sort of the larger research agenda you've been working on um, for the past bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so. Um, I knew that I wanted to um, work on classroom discourse data because I find just in general that dialogue or conversations are a super interesting domain in NLP um, to work with because there's still a lot of unexplored areas for developing new methods. And I I was super interested in education. I I have been super interested in education. So I thought that's uh, obviously like classroom discourse is like the main area where conversation and education overlaps. Um, and I, I started talking with Jenk, who, who graduated from the PhD in, in had the, had, right, did a PhD in education here at Stanford. And his dissertation was about analyzing classroom discourse. Um, so we started a collaboration, talked about a lot of different ideas for what we could do and um, also brought my advisor, Dan, on board. So, um, and also like brought Heather, um, who was one of Jenks collaborators from Harvard uh, and is an expert in like math instruction on board who had a data set of math, elementary math classroom transcripts. So we just had a long phase of, I think, brainstorming around um, what kind of things would be useful for teachers because our ultimate goal was to actually give them feedback on different aspects of their instruction. So we really wanted to make sure that whatever we do is like motivated by what's actually useful for teachers. And that's sort of my broad research agenda as well to develop such measures. So 
And we have this long document of like different things like that includes things like, oh, how much um, like students are doing mathematical reasoning when they're talking and like also like uh, measure different measures for questioning. Um, but uptake is well, uptake was also on this list. And we thought that, wow, that's like a very cool um, phenomenon that's very heterogeneous and also relevant from a discourse analytic point of view and just to all conversations. It's not very education specific. Even in a normal convert, everyday conversation, uptake is like very important. Like you wanna make sure that you build on whatever the other person said um, and that can make them feel heard. So, um, and I think Dan, my advisor was also especially excited about that. And so we, um, so we decided to focus on that phenomenon and then, yeah. So that's how, that's how sort of the general topic or focus um, that, and then, and then the other collaborators, I can talk about that later, how that, this is like sort of a very long process of how this project developed. And yeah, I'm happy to talk about the later parts. Yeah, um, I actually wanna hear about how you pulled in the other collaborators because I feel like it's such a big team and you kind of like probably found like areas where they would fit into the overall goals, right? Yeah, so, um, so Zid is actually a GS, a graduate, graduate student at Harvard at the GSC there. Um, so he's a PhD student in education and Heather um, is his advisor. So um, she brought Zid in and who he had also great suggestions about different phenomena we could measure. And also like when we were developing the annotation scheme, he had like so many cool resources to share with us. Um, that were really helpful and helped recruit annotators. So, um, so the, um, Heather brought him on board. And then once I, I think I presented this at an RP lunch at Stanford, which is like our weekly like series for giving talks and half-baked project uh, uh, things. And, uh, and I think Tatsu had really, really great ideas for like, at that point I was just like, oh, Here's how like I tried this or that, like, and I I was like sort of I felt like I was like onto something, but it would have been like I think formalizing actually like um like basically what I was trying to do was um using coming up with an unsupervised way to measure uptake, which is what the paper is about. And um and trying to come up with some kind of information theoretic framework for what uptake is. And, um, and Tatsu is an expert in that. He's, um, he did his postdoc in like statistics and now he's a computer science professor here. So he, he, um, he after the talk offline, just we just tried to start chatting and it was like, oh, do you actually wanna get involved? Um, and so yeah, that, that's how he was brought on. Great. I, I um, picked up on a little piece there where you're saying you're presenting half-baked ideas to um, presumably like a whole room of, of people. How important do you think sort of bringing people along very early in the research process is? And uh, do you think that's particularly important for these interdisciplinary collaborations too? Great question. Um, I've always worked on like big 
teams, I think, for all my papers. I have like so many authors. And um, my experience, I think it was never the case that everyone was there at the very beginning. So in my experience, um, like, you, ju you know, you just kind of start reaching out to people at different stages, depending on like maybe even at the idea formulation stage, you know that like, for example, Lucy and I worked on a project on textbooks and there too, we sort of knew that, oh, we wanted to analyze textbooks um, and we had these different ideas for what we want to do and read papers from education people and identified a few few scholars who whose work was relevant and we just like started reaching out to them one by one and met with them. So that was like really cool. And I think, you know, I don't think you need to bring people on early, um, whatever stage, you know, their contribution is useful to you. And I, I think I've just always like tended to err on the side of like being very generous with that, like generously bringing people along and not being like, oh, this is my project. Like, like maybe you can give me 10 minutes, but I'm not gonna, you know, bring you in or put you on the paper. Like, I think that's not, I think it's not very helpful for science and I'm really grateful that like NLP is an area where it's not necessarily the case that you want to have single authored papers or things like that. So, I mean, there are still other problems with like, <laughs> you know, just the fact that there's a linear order and everything that I think, you know, could, could, if that wasn't the case, I think we could have a more flexible ways of bringing on people and acknowledging everyone's credit, I think could mean and create a more equitable and supportive space in NLP as well. But um, anyways, I, I think that uh, my, my approach was just, yeah. Yeah, at any stage, if someone has some really cool, useful ideas and I'm not gonna tell them, oh, shut up, I don't wanna hear your ideas. And, yeah. So you mentioned throughout this paper that one of the underlying purposes of this work is to serve as an automated professional development tool for teachers. And later on, um, the costliness of professional development has meant that teachers working in under-resourced school systems have thus far had limited access, access to quality professional development in this area. So I feel like in NLP, we often do a lot of descriptive or predictive work, um, but you're really talking a lot about intervention, like making actual changes, prescribing to teachers what they should do differently. So how do you think about this, like moving from the descriptive predict mm -hmm. predictive space into one of intervention? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, Yes, so this paper was not um, was mainly descriptive. So what we did was we took um, we took this measure that we built for uptake, and then we the validation was sort of to take existing data sets of student teacher interactions that had certain relevant outcomes, and then correlate our measure with these outcomes to show that it measures important um, educationally important phenomena or, or things such as. I don't know, in one data set, it was with student satisfaction scores or external reviewer ratings. In another data set, it was ratings by coaches. So like things that education researchers like really value or that's what they trust. So um, I think that step was a very important intermediary, which is like what usually, that's where usually most NLP research stops is like, okay, we have used some secondary or existing data to validate it. 
even like some people don't even go that far, but I think that's where it usually ends. Um, and I think for me, it was very important to actually see how this could be useful and make a change um, and improve teacher practice. So um, we actually did an RCT in the spring where, um, where we built, um, and that's where we brought on another set of people um, and to, to, to basically where we built a pipeline for like a feedback app basically for teachers that use this uptake measure and, um, and deployed it on three different educational platforms. One was Code in Place, which is this large scale online programming course at Stanford with like 12,000 students and 1,200 section leaders who teach introduction to programming. And there was another for K-12 teachers, um, another platform and then another platform for one-on-one -on -one men research mentoring. Um, for the, these latter two, uh, we are still sort of collecting data, but for Code in Place, we now finished everything. It was a five-week course. Um, and, and what we found is that this app um, or this feedback actually improves teachers' uptake of student contributions significantly by like 24%. So that's really, really exciting. And uh, just in like, you know, a couple of weeks and um, you see some changes. So I think that was like so cool. And it's like, oh, why doesn't everyone do interventions? Like, I think it's just, even if you have a null result, like it's just a very exciting thing to do. That said, um, I think Lucy, our question was may, may, maybe also about like how to do that with care. And like, obviously you don't wanna just wanna like take something and put it in the real world and maybe like, you know, we have risks for causing harm and maybe propagating inequities. So I think one issue, like in our case, we wanted to like really mitigate that by making the app just as descriptive and non descriptive and non-judgmental as possible. So it was like, just, we are not evaluating you in any way. We're just like trying, like supporting your professional development. The feedback was shown privately to each instructor. So no one else really saw it. The transcripts were anonymized automatically. Um, and then they, um, so that's how, and we also sort of acknowledged that this was like a pilot study. Um, and we also only pulled out positive examples, no negative examples. So you know, here is an example where you did uptake or our measure shows that you did uptake. Um, and, uh, and not like, oh, here's a bad example because we didn't want to like. Um, so yeah, we wanted to make sure teachers had the agency and authority to interpret what we showed them. So that's one way we sort of tried to mitigate any, like, I guess one contrast would be like to actually just say, oh, this is what our model says. This is what you should do. We not, did not want to go there. And, uh, and I don't think I would ever want to go there actually. <laughs> So yeah, that's that's um, our bizarre approach. And maybe another point there is, there is still I think a lot of room for like there was this study was really helpful in this intervention was really helpful in identifying ways in which the measure itself could be improved and the whole like so I think that it like doing such pilots. Can, could really help NLP researchers come up with better algorithms and measures. Like, you know, because we, we sent out the survey at the end, we actually got really helpful feedback and also understood 
for example, the degree to which trans speech transcription was inaccurate for non-native speakers. Um, and uh, also like other things that could be added, like not just spoken transcripts, but analyses of, this was all online. So like analyses of chat transcripts or visual data. So teachers or users give you a lot of cool ideas to work with, which I think could benefit a lot of applications. This, this is super, super exciting, Dora, that, you know, the paper that we're talking about or, or was our focal point of, of this episode is, is really like an NLP descriptive paper, but the fact that you deployed it in RCT and, and, and sort of are getting this feedback loop between the, the tool that you're building and then the actual intervention, um, it's just really, really exciting. Um, and one of the things I, I pulled out from, from reading this paper was that you also talk about evaluating on this sim teacher data set in which you have this virtual classroom interface that is populated by student advertisers. Um, and this was another setting that I never really thought of before um, this intersection of technology and education. So can you talk a, a little bit about other sort of proposed innovative technological solutions in this education space or places you want to go? And what do you think specifically, second part of the question, what, what do you think specifically is, is the role of people that are trained in these different backgrounds, like um, you're trained as a computer scientist as opposed to someone who's trained as an educator? Yeah, thank you. Those, those are great questions. So just the first point is about um, educate, like, you know, exciting education, technological um, areas. So the SIM teacher data, I'm glad that you brought it up. It's a very cool data set that um, Julie Cohen and her team collected. So obviously teaching is so context dependent. So everything in like language, is just like, you know, you know best uh, Katie, because you, I, I really love your work and like causal inference stuff. So there's just so much to control for. And like that data is a very exciting data set. So, so Julie and her team that like does professional development for teachers and what they're trying to like disentangle is like, how does just the teacher talk if you sort of control for the student talk, how does that um, differ, let's say, based on like student um, skin tone or, or like things like that. So there, that's why they have the avatars, for example, they manipulate things like that. Um, and they have actors behind the avatars. So obviously, you know, even though the, this setup also has its imperfections, um, in education, there are just so many things in an educational context, like, the teacher's own background, the student's background, the number of students, like the subject, the time of the year, everything can affect um, whatever you measure. And that's what, when I give a talk on uptake, like educate, education researchers very often ask, but what about this? What about that? What about like, and there's just so many things that can affect yeah, <laughs> um, what the teacher decides to say. So, um, so that same teacher data, even though we could really didn't quite exploit it in our data set, the fact that it's such a neatly like controlled data um, is a very cool like way of testing out certain linguistic patterns of teachers. Um, I think other, um, yeah, other sort of technological areas where education I think could, yeah, I guess it just it's just so broad. Like there are a lot of things um, you could you could do, but um, 
But um, I think one thing that, for example, we decided to do, which was to kind of only focus on teacher talk and not on student talk for now, because it's just so many, like, first of all, in transcription to the quality of transcription tends to be worse for students if it's especially in an on, like an in-person environment. Um, but obviously that has its limitations. So like, for example, expanding that to like capture student talk better and analyze class uh, student talk better is something that has not really been done for this reason. And then your second question, but yeah, I'm happy to talk <laughs> if I come up with more thoughts on this, um, happy to say them. So the other question was about how maybe my role as an educate an LP person and not the, or, or not my role, but as an education researcher, yeah, so so as sort of, you know, these really exciting technological solutions to education are popping up, right, like virtual classroom or, or these, these app-based um, professional development training you're talking about, what do you see the roles of someone who is trained in, say, computer science as opposed to someone who's trained in education, and how do you sort of communicate across these roles towards the central goal? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a great question. So I think unlike, for example, healthcare or other areas where I feel like there has been a more longstanding tradition of NLP researchers collaborating with like practitioners maybe, education I feel like is relatively new. Um, and it's in this, that in this set, like education data science or NLP and education is sort of new. Um, and, you know, most work in NLP and education has been so far, if you look at like the workshop and the ACL conferences for use of NLP for education applications, oftentimes it's like related to readability assessment or essay scoring. Um, that's, I mean, there are new, um, now there are new direct directions emerging, but still it's sort of um, a novel area, for example, using NLP for teacher professional development. And my, I think that um, what I've seen in the education space is that usually there are, so I'm not as familiar to be honest with, uh, with like the readability, like the essay scoring um, research, but I'm more familiar with like learning analytics and like this newer avenue of education data mining. I think usually the people in that sphere tend to have some background in both education and NLP. And I think, I mean, it's really crucial. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, I definitely felt that I um, like, yeah, I would not have been able to do this project at all if it wasn't weren't for my education collaborators. And it was a, you know, as with any interdisciplinary collaboration, obviously there was a barrier, language barrier in the beginning of like, okay, what does this machine learning algorithm do? And so like, I think luckily our algorithm was sort of more, wasn't super sophisticated. So you could, you, I could like draw pictures and show examples of what it did. Um, but I do wonder, yeah, like I often think that using a, like, I don't, like right now, I, I think that in computational social science, like you still have so much room to even explore what these more simple algorithms can do before we even venture to like the more 
yeah, like like uh, uh, ensemble methods for whatever, like, I don't know, just like things that are much more black box and much more difficult to understand, even for an NLP researcher, like, um, so yeah, so I guess I don't know that that was sort of rambling, but I think it's, uh, it's um, my, my current approach is to start with very simple, yeah, simpler algorithms. And for example, BERT is something that I still couldn't explain very well. So you just say, oh, this is the state of the art that people use in NLP now for all these different tasks. And I think that uh, in the future, maybe I could explain it <laughs> better. And yeah, I wonder for other uh, computational social scientists, what did they do like when they explain BERT to like non-computational non people? Yeah, there are so many, I feel like, unique aspects to your paper. Like, just while reading it, I know it's published in an NLP venue, but there were so many interesting aspects that I've never seen in any other NLP paper. And one of this was the data sets that you were using. Like, I had never heard of these data sets before. So I'm just, like, wondering, like, how did you find them? Um, and what were the data sets that you used? And, like, how did you bring them in? Yeah, sure. So the um, main data set we use is called the NCTE data set. It's this data set of elementary math classroom transcripts that my collaborator Heather collected back in 2011 to 2013, I believe. Um, and this was through like, they had this massive project through the Gates Foundation. And it's a really nicely collected, very representative sample of transcripts from New England schools that had a bunch of outcome information and also they did randomization with teacher-student assignments. So it's like a very neat data set. Um, and the transcripts are all anonymized. So that that is um, one, that is the main data that we also annotate, sampled from then annotated. And we plan to actually release this data set at some point. So hopefully other people can also use it for their research. The other data sets were, uh, yeah, I kept hunting for similar data sets. I actually like originally had a lot more and some were non-education. So I even used like speed dating data. There was like persuasion data sets. There were empathy data sets. Um, there was something in the, like, yeah, anything. Like I applied this uptake measure to a bunch of different data, conversation data sets and found like cool, cool correlations with outcomes there as well. But I just couldn't fit it in the paper. So we'd settled on these three. So the other one was the same teacher that I already mentioned with the student avatars and sim simulated environments. Um, and I guess what's nice about the NCT and the NCT's in-person math, um, same teacher is English language and arts classroom, small group setting. Um, and then the third one was one-on-one -on -one math and science tutoring text-based tutoring um, data. So I can, I'm not allowed to say the name of the company <laughs> that we got it from, but it's from a colleague who is in the education school. He worked with this company and this, um, they are, yeah, they're a private company that just shared their data with us. So I think that it's, a, I was like sort of not sure initially if we should use that there or not, because obviously it's more, nice and transparent for transparency to be able to use a data set that we can report everything about. Um, but since this was just one among three in the validation set, 
um, and this is a pretty massive data set, uh, we just decided to, to go with it. But um, like, I would not have used that as my only or main. Gotcha. Um, slightly switching topics, but uh, one, one line I loved in this paper was this comment about the annotation took six months to develop and complete <laughs> longer than most other annotations in NLP for similar data size. So two questions. One, can you talk about what this annotation development process was like and why it was so difficult? And two, can you speculate on why sort of the, the annotation efforts aren't necessarily valued by the NLP community as much as say theoretical or modeling efforts? Mm, yeah, great question. So um, I think we decided to highlight how much effort it took partly because the ultimately the inter-rater agreement um, was sort of relatively low compared to what you would expect for like other NLP tests. So usually maybe in, for most NLP tests, like sentiment analysis, you would expect like 0 0.8, 0 0.9 range like um, agreements. And we got like something like 0.5, around 0.5 um, correlation score, but I think it's, um, anyways. So basically like lower down what you would expect in NLP. And so we sort of wanted to like people to understand that that's not because we were very reckless. Um, we actually took a lot of time and, and care with developing it. It's just that in education, when it comes to like, people actually have developed these observation instruments for uh, assessing or evaluating instruction. Um, and my colleague Heather developed one of the main ones, MQI or math instruction quality. And for these, it's just like, these are such subjective and heterogeneous constructs, like uptake, okay, like maybe they're, they're like, you know, the disagreements were usually between neighboring values. So like, is this like high for uptake or mid for uptake? These are very context dependent. And we really only showed the annotators a couple of examples. So not the full transcript. Um, for annotating because we wanted to make sure they sort of made the decision mostly based on that utterance. Anyways, so that's just to say that uh, the difficulty I think came partly from the, just the heterogeneity of this construct of uptake. And we wanted to like convey that that is a difficult um, or heterogeneous construct. And the, um, like, for example, the same question of, of how, um, um, like, let's say if the student says like, oh, I, I, I added 30 and 70 and the teacher says, and what's next? Um, it could be a more sort of open-ended, like it could be like high uptake in some, some maybe for some people because in some contexts, it's like a very open-ended question. It's like, okay, what, and what do you do next? But in some other cases, it could be something like, the teacher has a very specific thought in mind, they just, or they just purposefully, purposefully like kind of elicited this, that the student says, I added 30 to 70 without, and that wasn't, like it wasn't, a, it could be a different context. It could be a very like, 
um, dialogic question, what's next? And in other contexts, it's more of like a question that's called like funneling, like funneling the student to a particular answer. So yeah, that's just one example. But um, so we we like took a lot of, we took six months because it took a lot of um, time to develop the annotation protocol. Um, uptake is a, is a term that's not necessarily like meaningful to teachers. So we had to define it in different ways, like active listening, give them a lot of good examples, um, bring, in, bring in experts like coaches to develop the protocol, do pilot annotations with them, and then re recruit a larger group of people to do the actual annotation for all the, sem the entire sample that we had. Um, so this took like several rounds and months. Um, yeah. And, uh, and obviously teachers or coaches are busy. So you can't just say like I'm Turk, like do it in a couple of hours. You had to give people like weeks <laughs> to actually do it. Um, so yeah, that's why it took so long. And then the, the second question, which is like underappreciation of the annotation efforts. I think it's just because we are used to maybe annotations that seem more like straightforward for people. Like, yeah, um, things that you can just crowdsource on Amazon, how can they call Turk? Um, like, is this translation accurate or not? And you kind of just want to get any human can answer whatever you ask, which is not true. I don't think that's <laughs> the case. And I think we should take a lot more care with all annotation. But that's, that's uh, I think once you involve experts and have a more sophisticated construct, it, it takes longer. And yeah, people don't appreciate that as much. Um, and then another way I think people think of annotation in NLP is usually just like as a very last, like if they're not actually using it to measure performance, but rather just as a validity check at the very end, like, oh, well, we did sort of make sense from a human point of view, then they don't really care about the accuracy. They're just like, okay, like what's, maybe they just care about what impressions the human people had. Like, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know, but <laughs> I hope that annotation will be more appreciated in future work. How did you find your expert raters? Like, how did you recruit them? Mostly through Heather. <laughs> so she, because she developed this coding scheme, the coding instrument for the mathematical quality of instruction, he had a pool of teachers and coaches who did this, uh, who used this protocol before. And, uh, and it was through them and also through Zid. So Zid also shared it with GSE PhDs at Harvard. Um, so that, um, and we, we actually got, without actually like specifically making sure that we had the representative group of annotators, um, our group of annotators is pretty representative in terms of demographics of like the teacher population. So like, yeah, there were people of color um, and there were also like, I think a bit more women than men, which is also sort of representative. Yeah, so that was cool. Right. Um, once you published this paper, what did you get any sort of reactions from people outside of the project? And if so, what were those? 
Mm. Um, so I guess before publishing, so the reviewers were like, oh, um, I think there was one reviewer. It was just like, not clearly not coming from social science. And they were just like, oh, can you, did, could you let me actually try to look at the review? So it's like, and I think they also didn't really <laughs> read the paper very closely, but like, why didn't you use this measure or this measure? Did you try this? Did you try that? And they were not um, very interested, I think, in the, the qualitative or the other points we, we made. Um, and, um, and that's just actually to add to that, um, we actually, I, I actually tried a lot of other measures as well, which did not make it into the paper. Um, but after we published, I think, so I don't know if you've ever felt that way, because I think, you know, I listened to your podcast, for example, with, um, Maria Antoniak and, um, and I, I really like where they talked about with Karen and I'd really like where they talked about like different audiences and I, you know, I felt, I always feel like for computational social science kind of work, uh, it's just less appreciated maybe in the, in an, at an NRP venue. So um, yeah, people are excited about your methods but if they don't immediately see the clear connection to their own application domain, then they might not be interested. And so um, I've been trying to advertise it. Like so far I've been, like obviously we presented it at ACL and everything, but I've been trying to advertise it more now outside of the, the NLP community because I just feel like people are a lot more interested um, <laughs> in this. and. Um, and yeah, and I guess their reactions are just like, I think how, how can we, how can we um, build measures for other things as well in instruction? And also how can we make this more, this uptake measure more granular or fine grained? Um, so like, as I mentioned, the context dependence is very important, but also like, can you distinguish between different types of uptake? Um, is like a very, it's like something that I'm, I'm now like we're working on and excited about. So, so yeah, I think, it, I think it's just, uh, it's, um, um, oh yeah. And then and just one more thing that I want to mention there, there are not that many people in the first place that who work on educational, like transcripts from classrooms using computational methods. There's one group at the uh, University of Colorado at Boulder who, um, who do this um, and they're detecting talk moves and teacher uh, utterances. And so I've been actually like as a result of this paper and just like there's a, so much synergy between our work. I've started talking with them. so. In that sense, this paper was like a stepping stone for a lot of fruitful work. Um, but yeah, it's it's also recent. So I think that maybe in the NLP community, there will be also more people interested in this kind of research. 
So one of another sentence in your paper that kind of stood out, especially for someone who works also in computational social science using so-called real world data is you say large amounts of labeled data are not possible in many contexts due to data privacy reasons and or limited resources. And so because of this, you decide to focus on an unsupervised approach. Um, this is a pretty interesting angle. And can you collaborate a bit more on like the how to like figure out the set of methods to use in a computational social science problem? Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think I'm just generally like a fan of unsupervised things because um, I just like more bottom up approaches that are that make an RP more interpretable. I think you really know what, but the, even though like, you know, there, there's still a lot of room for bias, at least you sort of know what the model is learning from and what the model is doing as opposed to like a supervised model where it's just okay just whatever biases your training data had you're just applying it and, and it's also i think methodologically more interesting so the 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 um the privacy part is i think also very important um for all social science um, methods i think there's obviously a tricky trade-off between you want to make sure that your model works for the target domain, so you don't just want to apply something out of the box. But like, um, I think you know, some kind of small, like smaller scale validation is can happen, and is very important. But um, yeah, I don't know if I, I'm answering your question, but. Um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of considerations to take. I also favor unsupervised approaches. Um, so our next question is like, what were the major pitfalls or challenges while working on this paper? Mm, great question. There were, yeah, there were quite a few. So I think that um, one was this, like developing the annotation protocol, like as an NLP person, I think, for me too, it was unexpectedly long. Um, yeah, like the, but it was a really great learning experience. So that just like, like for example, seeing how no matter how much you train your annotators, the the sort of their agreement wasn't getting any higher. So like realizing, okay, where is the point where it's okay? It's probably not. Like even when you when we annotated something with all 13 annotators the score didn't get higher so it wasn't like due to some arbitrary data problems but it's actually something about the construct we are trying to capture that's just very subjective so that that was like i think one area where you know we had struggles and a lot of really interesting conversations um and like all the education collaborators would be assured us oh no this actually looks fine like this looks great for like, this is all like what we have in like all these observation protocols, which is good to know, you know, when like as a teacher, maybe you get these coach, coaches evaluate you, like just know that <laughs> this is so subjective. Um, anyway, so that that was very interesting. And then the other um, area where we had like struggles was, um, I was actually working a lot on developing building like so so basically our the measure for dependence um is just a simple next utterance classifier so i trained that on the 
transcripts um, by generating random samples, so samples of student utterance and then a randomly sampled teacher utterance from the same transcript. And the model was learning to distinguish from these random samples from the actual student teacher utterance pair. And that's very simple. And I was trying to think of ways to augment that or complement that with things like politeness or words that maybe from Luke or other lexicons that indicate like how much maybe the teacher is like using cognitive verbs or things that probe the students to think or WH questions like why or how, how do you or things like that. And interestingly enough, like they really didn't improve like over the perform like performances in terms of correlation with human judgments. Like maybe they had like some very marginal improvements. So for I think months, I just had all these different like arrays of different methods. Like I even changed the objective function to like one thing that was um, also interesting was that which, which, you, which we see in the paper that a base, simple baseline, which is just like percent T, which is the percentage of tokens from the student utterance that are repeated by the teacher does really well as well. So we had this very strong baseline um, and the numbers and paper didn't look that different between our best dependence-based measure and this other measure, even though there, there was a significant difference. So I think that was just something I really worried about. Oh, people will just think, oh, is it really just that? Is it really just repetition? And so that's another reason why I really wanted to like improve over, over that. So I changed like the objective function to like minimize repetition, like not, not try to not learn repetition or learn stuff above repetition. Um, but it really, really <laughs> didn't make a difference. So that's where this sort of dialogue act analysis came in where um, they said, okay, like, can we actually capture what other, there are any like qualitative differences between this just simple repetition-based baseline and the sophisticated measure. Um, and that was very cool and exciting that it did capture a richer range of phenomenon. However, in practice, it still captures, like a majority of stuff it captures is related to overlap or repetition. And that's just, I think, a, I think an interesting finding in itself, like, you know, when you think of chatbots, like in chatbots, usually you have a problem where, um, oh, sorry, also we are almost out of time. So just one more thought there. In chatbots, you usually, like people ask this question a lot. So I think that this is interesting. So like, can, whether you could use this uptake measure to train chatbots. And the answer is clearly no. Like, you know, people have used next utterance classifiers to train chatbots and that completely fails because it just creates parrots that like repeat exactly what you said. Um, and you sort of there, you wanna control for repetition and minimize it. But then human to human conversations, like it's actually not the case. So humans don't necessarily naturally like repeat or have a lot of overlap or build on what the other person says very explicitly, even though it is a good thing. It is a good thing in like an education context, especially in the big classroom where the teacher just wants like make sure everyone has heard that that what that student said. It's a good thing to repeat what they have said. So I think yeah, <laughs> just sort of this whole thing about repetition, which was a problem, but then became a very interesting like yeah thing to explore.
Gotcha. It, it sounds like um, really difficult challenges in a construct that is so central to education, but really difficult to automate. And it sounds like yeah. um, sort of there's there's many open questions. So um, unfortunately, we are ending the near uh, the end of our time. So we want to end with any advice you would give to our listeners who are also trying to take on interdisciplinary projects, as well as anything else you'd like to say that we didn't cover so far? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, my advice would be just, yeah, be open, do it. And I think any, any project can become interdisciplinary. Like, um, I think there is no projects that couldn't benefit from diverse perspectives from people. So I just, like yeah encourage everyone (laughs) to bring in expertise and and usually people are super open to chatting with you and especially if you come from a quantitative background or data scientific background um there's such a like people who are not coming from that background you know are often excited and open to you know bringing in your methods and and ways of thinking or quantitative skills to help them solve like interesting problems. So yeah, and anything else, I think that's, and yeah, I also just like, I feel like more people should do stuff in education because it's like, there are so many exciting problems and it's also the community is so nice. Like it's such a vision driven community. Like there, you know, people are really like value centered, like we all have a shared goal, which is to support teachers and educators. And, and that's, I think, rare in like many academic communities, like people have very different values or very different ideas. And maybe that's not even central to have a value. <laughs> um, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to like diminish um, yeah, any other communities. I'm just saying that this is like a really great community. And I really liked working with people from this group, yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dora, for sharing your your thoughts and um, your work with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your great questions and thank you for listening.